What is going on? Welcome to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd, joined as always by Canucks insider Thomas Drance, who also covers the team at the Athletic Canucks Talk, brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics. Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. It is the Canucks game day at Rogers Arena against the New York Rangers. No morning skate today, but a piece of very interesting lineup news from head coach Rick Tockett, which is that 21-year-old goalie, Archers Seelovs, and... Doing my best to get the pronunciation right. Well, that's the NHL pronunciation guide. Yes. Seelovs, as it stands. I believe that's what you'll hear from Shorthouse and Brendan Batchelor tonight. But let's note it. Let's just note it off the top. And we'll get producer Dom to chime in here, too, because producer (laughs) Dom has a personal experience with this. The letter that Arthur's name starts, last name starts with, is almost always pronounced sh as opposed to s. Right, it's a sh sound like shat, like as in shadow, uh, like so. You know, I'm curious to see once we talk to him if our pronunciation evolves. For now, NHL pronunciation guide, Silovs. That's what we'll go with. Talking about him as he prepares to make his NHL debut, and in a move that I think poses a lot of questions. It's surprising. It's certainly not what I uh, was anticipating. I was like filling out a rundown for myself last night and just kind of. Wrote in, guessing this this would be the case. You know, Silov's called up, set to back up Colin Delia against the Rangers. No, he is going to get the start. I, uh, you know, Talkit didn't really mention uh, much about the reasoning beyond, like, basically saying, hey, why not? I've heard a lot of good things about him. Why not get a look at what he can do? It is surprising, though. I, I don't. I wonder what the specific impetus is to get Archer Silov's this chance. Maybe it is as simple as a, a, an information-gathering opportunity for the Canucks. So, Silov's about to be the, what, fourth goaltender <laughs> yep. uh, to play behind this defense. Uh, a punishing a punishing circumstance in which to make your debut based on Vancouver's run of defensive form. But, look, I don't think you can ignore that Vancouver's had the worst goaltending in the league this season, like by a fair bit. And actually, that's gotten worse since the coaching change. So, like, Rick Tockett hasn't gotten a save since he came aboard. And and granted, I think his goalies are getting hung out to dry like yesterday's laundry. But that doesn't change the fact that, you know, at this point, if you're Rick Tockett, I'm sure you're, you know, you're trying to coach defensive systems, right? You're trying to install things. And, and what helps when you're a coach if you're trying to install things and get people, like, build trust in your methods, build trust in your system? Helps to get some results, right? Like if... If if I give you a gambling tip and it and I'm like that's a lock, you know, and then Creighton loses in double overtime, <laughs> you're probably not gonna bet. You know, you're probably not gonna value my picks. It's like it's not different for players and coaches. So, you know, after all the time doing that defensive walkthrough and on and on that the club spent yesterday, having a goaltender or get, you know getting some saves would certainly be helpful. As Rick Tockett tries to sort of impress upon his new players the importance of buying in to specifically what he's selling. Here's another, here's another angle that I think matters. 
clearly, and you can tell, Canucks players have been frustrated by the caliber of goaltending that they've received. I think that's ludicrous. I think they should look at the chances they're surrendering. But it's been obvious, right? Like, you don't get the JT Miller, Colin Delia thing mm-hmm. without it, right? And there, and, and I think there have been some, you know, more than just that, there have been some other broken stick moments where you can tell that the target of the player's ire is like, that was a soft goal against. At some point, that becomes an excuse. That becomes like, well, how are we supposed to win with this goaltending? And granted, I think, how are you supposed to get saves behind this defense? But, you know, nonetheless... In terms of the story that players tell themselves, and we know that it's not like this group needs a ton of rope to come up with the excuses that they need, you know, at some point you need to sort of eliminate that, right? Putting Silovs or Silovs into a situation like this at least gives the Canucks sort of another guy to look at and another sort of piece of motivation like, okay, this isn't the two guys who've struggled for you. This is a new young guy. You better be. You better well, be on point that, that's to the, protect the good young guy. The last part there is what I was wondering. If it's oh, almost totally. like you're not going to play like that in front of this guy making his debut, are you? Like you're not going to be the, that sort of teammate. So you better up your game for this guy. But it's a challenge, and it's like the removal of an excuse, you know. And and I know like this all sounds absurd. Like I know what I'm talking about sounds absurd. But we live in a world where this team is being told, like. You know, uh, talk to about body posture on or, or body posture, body language mm-hmm. on line changes. Like there are beer league teams that have a sloppy line change and a play goes offside and are discussing it at the intermission. You know, like that's the level we're at in terms of like what motivational buttons talk it may be considering pushing. I wouldn't be surprised if this is one of them. All of that said, we live in a world now where. Niels Hoaglander and Atu Ratu remain in the American mm-hmm. League. But Silovs is getting a you know premature shot at an NHL game against a really good offensive team. It's also it's a little weird, right? It's a little yeah, inconsistent. Well, against a really good offensive team and the the Vesna winner, the reigning Vesna winner in the crease on the other side. Uh that's a really <laughs> tough, really tough spot to put your young goalie in. And there's a few other things. So it's hard for me to wrap my head around the idea that they're starting Seelovs because they think they need a boost in the crease, right? And I understand, you know, Ian Clark thinks very, very highly of Archer Seelovs. I, I understand that's part of this, and obviously I'm going to defer to what Ian Clark has to say about goalies, as a lot of people in the organization, I'm sure, do as well. It just feels like if that's the thought process that's taking a massive, massive risk. And I'm also a little surprised because it sounds like Thatcher Demko is going to be ready to go by next week. That's sort of the timeline. So you're telling me you couldn't just ride with Delia and Seelov's backing up for like two more games? One more game, potentially, right? Well, but maybe you – I mean, I think Ian Clark advocated last season. Like, remember when uh, Demko was shuttered and the club had sort of a pretty hefty run of games to close the season and after that Ottawa or sorry after the Minnesota and uh, Calgary losses it was pretty clear they were out of it and mm-hmm. there were still three games to play I think I think Ian Clark wanted to see Seelovs get a get a look um, in one of those games late obviously that didn't happen so you know I, I at the end of the day like Silovs is a 902 save percentage in the American League. He's had some glowing moments on the international stage, which is absolutely a comparable level of competition. But 
you know, this is not sort of a, um, this is not a easy spot to put a goalie who hasn't even been like crushing it in the American League, right? Yeah, like, and I know you know you, t- you, you people who follow it closely. Like he's got X save percentage over his last ten games. There's there's a narrative of improvement there, and I'm sure, you know, maybe Ian Clark sees some of those same things as well. This text, but uh, small sample save percentage. Yeah. Oh, I mean, for sure. Yeah. The 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 guy is barely faced. He's only faced <laughs> like just over a thousand shots in the American League. So we're not waiting the nine oh two, but obviously you'd rather see something, you know. Like Dustin Wolf can't buy a start for a Calgary Flames team that has goaltending issues. Guy's a career nine thirty in the American League. Like, uh, you know, nine oh two certainly is a is a data point that suggests, hey, this is maybe a little too much too soon mm-hmm. for me anyway. This text comes in. Uh, isn't it more likely that it's just a cookie for Seelovs, who's had a great AHL season? I can see that being part of it—a reward for a player. Hey, we called you up. We're not just going to ask you to sit on the bench. But again, you have to you have to weight the perceived reward for a player and giving them this opportunity with the risk that there is as well and putting them in a difficult position. And of course, lots of people are texting in. I wouldn't say he's had a great AHL season, but he's definitely had a great last five games, right? Like he's definitely the hottest puck stopper in the organization at the moment. And given how this team sort of given the goaltending this team has received under Tockett, perhaps that's good enough. Perhaps it's just that simple. It's like we have one guy who seems to be like on his game right now. Let's play him. Maybe it's that simple. I don't I don't know that we need to look too much further than that. Cause certainly like the tank excuse doesn't hold No, up. I don't think you this is not like a cannon fodder guy. No. This is a guy they have high hopes for. You, You're not putting him in with the intention of, oh, he's gonna get lit up and that'll be great. If you They're wanna, not gonna throw him to the wolves like that. If you wanted cannon fodder, you had Spencer That's Martin. Spencer Martin. That's yeah. Spencer Martin and Colin Delia. Fact, the Canucks had They're the, the guys. Can, they had the cannon fodder tandem yeah. tandem. It was perfect. Um The Clark Seelovs thing though is real, right? Like this is the star pupil of Vancouver's goaltending system. And the club was over the moon. And, and you know, I, I mean, at the management level, too, with how Seelovs looked during training camp. Like, in a true, like, merit-based system, I think the Canucks would have <laughs> broken camp with Seelovs as their number two. There was no way they were going to do that. Yeah. But, like, you know, don't forget, like, Jim Rutherford was a goalie, right? Like, they loved what they saw from Seelovs in Whistler and... You know, Clark's been so high on this guy. Like, he was drafted in Vancouver 2019 mm-hmm. in the sixth round. And, you know, war stories from the draft table contend that, like, from round three on, <laughs> every time a pick came around, right? Like, someone's phone would light up with a text from Clark being, like, hammering the table. This guy. Take him. Don't lose him. Take this guy. So this is definitely the apple of Ian Clark's eye. Um, you know, with, with a ton of ramifications for that, we'll see, we'll see how he performs, but this feels like a really tough spot to be thrown into. Yeah. And people, uh, bringing up and not surprise here, uh, the, the Mikey DiPietro debut. No, not fair. He was, he That's, was, still he, was a, he was a junior goalie. He was still an Ontario league goalie. He this, was a junior goalie. And that was also a direct result of like, they got caught injuries and unfortunate. They basically got claims. stuck and they had to do it. This is intentional. At least, you know, this isn't like, oh man, our only option is to play this junior goalie. This is at least they're going through a process. They're considering it. They're putting him in. And I also don't think, like, look, you don't want to put a goalie in that position that DiPietro got put in. But it's not as if that's the 
turning point of his career. You know, it still ultimately is a one-game thing. So you you want to avoid the risk, but I, I don't think it's really directly comparable as much as I'm not surprised people are, are bringing it up in this situation. Oh, I think it has zero relationship. Like, Mike, Mikey DiPietro wasn't a pro goalie yet. Yeah. He just wasn't a pro goalie yet. Like, you know, I, I can I can look at Seelovs' 902 career save percentage in the American League and be like, ooh, I don't know. Is this really your star goaltending pupil? That seems like a stretch. But he's played 42 in AHL games, an additional 10 in the ECHL, and he's been like a regular with the senior men's team in Latvia. Like, mm. he's got meaningful world um, – what are they called? World the championships. World championships. The wor- world's experience against like really good teams, like not just, you know, what what Brian Burke would call the Panamas of the world, but like real teams. The Panamas of the world, indeed. Um, well, there's yeah. there's a quote about the Sedins lighting it up in the World Juniors against the, <laughs> you know, lesser teams, and I think he's like, probably like Latvia yeah, or they, something. To be they, <laughs> they killed it against Panama. <laughs> Um, have you ever looked, by the way, at like the double uh, IHF website? Because there's not just the one. There's like the yeah, world championships, but then there's a, a million tiers. There's the different tiers below yeah. that. And you get down to the last tier, and it's like literally like Panama versus Mongolia in <laughs> in tier four yeah. men's world championships. I always I would love to go to one of those tournaments well, one day. Honestly, like my dream, my dream story would be to be embedded with one of the teams struggling to stay up at the world championships. You know, like. Yeah. Like those Italian teams, like lots of those guys are like bankers, you know, like literally these are barely like a lot of them are like, you know, they're like low level pro players or some of them are like pro players in like the Milan Super League or whatever. But like fundamentally, these are normal guys who have other jobs who spend like six weeks prepping during a training camp and like are absolutely there to like win one game or win the overtime that matters or the shootout that matters and like otherwise have some pops and a nice time. That would that's my my dream is to be embedded with like, you know, it's usually Italy or um, you know, one of the Nordic countries that's not Finland, Sweden, so Norway. Norway. <laughs> <laughs> um, my dream is to be embedded with one of those groups at, at the worlds. So it would be the it would be a blast, and I think people would be stunned by how good the stories are. Yeah, the uh I just looked. Uh the twenty twenty three division four Ice Hockey World Championships are, in fact, in Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia this year, coming up in March. So there you go. Sick. If you can find a web stream of that, turn it on for some great content. <laughs> find find a money line on playnow.com. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I would never bet uh, on hockey. Yes, indeed. Uh, and that's the only reason you wouldn't bet on that tournament. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Ethics. This, this, this text comes in, uh, let Clark cook. And I mean, I get that. I think that's not a bad argument, to be honest. You have Ian Clark, and he's telling you, "Hey, I want it. There's reasons I want to see this guy. I think he's earned it. I think he deserves it. It'll help me. It'll help him. All of that. Yeah. If Ian if Ian Clark is in your ear telling you that, that's pretty persuasive. It's not the end of the discussion, but I do think that's pretty persuasive. And then final thing on the uh, the Seelovs start here. Uh, this text variations of it coming in. Uh, basically asking if there's any connection between Silov's getting the start. Uh, this one, I'll, I'll read this one from Hassan from Burnaby. Do either of you guys think the fact Silov's is getting the start is so the organization can see how far away he is from the NHL level because they are exploring Demko trades? I don't think there's any connection, and I think what you said about Ian Clark wanting to get Silov's a game last year 
is kind of the telltale there, right? Like they uh, weren't they weren't considering trading Demko last year. So I, I like honestly, if I had to guess, I would say there's one guy that the organization looks at right now and is like, hey, he's playing well. Like Martin had a tough night in Calgary. Like he's lost in his game. Uh, Colin Delia, you know, is a totally fine quad A guy, but man, it's not been pretty. Right? No, and he had a couple of bad goals against Detroit as one, well. Anyway. Well, the one he dropped, like he dropped one, and then there's the jam play at the side. Yeah, but that was a that was the one that was the one where uh, Pod Colson was the low forward among among three forwards. Like, oh no, you can find flaws <laughs> on the other guys on the yeah, ice on those was, goals too. Was, Don't worry. Delia didn't perfectly snag a glorious chance, and also there was no one there to clean up the rebound. Sorry, I'm not pinning that on the goaltender. Anyway, um, I thought there was one goal that maybe Delia should have had, um, and I, you know. Hey, we'll see. We'll see. It's a tough, tough spot, especially against this Rangers power play, especially against these Rangers players. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, 650-650. Keep your text coming in as we uh, look forward to tonight's game against the New York Rangers. And yeah, that's certainly dominating the discussion. Uh, Archer Silov's getting the start. And we're in this interesting period with the Canucks where obviously, you know, Rick Tockett again yesterday was very clear that, you know, he's, he is prioritizing the process over the results, even going as far to say, like, look, if I if we have hard practices and we tire them out a little bit and they're a little tired for the game, so be it. That's what we have to do. So it makes it hard to judge the results, which we know is going to be the case anyways for the rest of this season. And, you know, it's not as if, we're expecting this dramatic defensive turnaround because Rick Tockett put them through some extraordinarily basic paces yesterday. I think the thing more than anything else I'm looking for, and it kind of ties in with what we were saying with Archer Silovs, is Rick Tockett hasn't just called out their defensive play. He's also called out really basic things like regulating your emotions and the body language you have and not smashing your sticks, right, and not being entitled. And that's the thing I'm going to be paying attention to more than anything else is just does that message sink in? Because that's not that shouldn't be the kind of thing that you need to drill on. You know what I mean? Like, you don't need to practice not smashing your stick. Or you shouldn't, anyways. That should be something you can get into control pretty quickly. Basic professionalism. That, that's what that is. Like, yeah. that's what that stuff is. I, I, I mean, honestly, I'm at, lo- I'm at a loss. I'm at a loss for a coach having to talk about it that much. I'm at a loss for that not being a baseline expectation. Like, honestly, I don't, I don't, I don't know what else to say about it. It's wild to me. It is, and yet here we are. But I mean, what? Like again? Okay, so they go back to grade school. Well, that's that's not gonna. They're, they're not gonna all of a sudden be defensive aces tonight oh. against the New York Rangers. You know oh, what I mean? Below average would be fantastic. Be a major improvement based on what we saw in Detroit. Uh, but honestly, like if they can, if they can just find some of that basic professionalism, uh, tonight would be the night to do it with Archer Silovs uh, getting his first start <laughs> as an NHL goalie against no, you, you, a very good New York Rangers team. You absolutely better. You absolutely better not hang a young player out to dry like that. Like that would be cruel especially after not after just getting called out 
for being entitled, playing entitled, right? For letting your emotions get your best, get the best of you by your head coach. You can't do that yeah. uh, to a guy but, coming into this position. Yeah, and no, I mean, you know, at the, you you had the you had the comment yesterday, like, does every game now that you know management's coaches in in which the team truly isn't performing up to like a pretty basic standard does that increase the chance of a rebuild like here's another one mm. you know if if at what point if you don't respond in this situation is it just easiest to conclude or in fact correct to conclude that there's nothing here here even worth salvaging yeah again it comes back to is this part of challenging the team with this right yeah i, I think that's an interesting way to look at the decision. Uh, one other thing I wanted to get to, not directly related to the game tonight, but just before uh, we take a break, there was a really interesting interview with Carolina Hurricanes executive Don Waddell yesterday in The Athletic. I believe, yeah, it was with uh, our guy Sean Gentili, who's on the show from time to time. And lots of interesting stuff in there about how Waddell and the Hurricanes are approaching the trade deadline. But the most interesting thing from a Canucks perspective was Waddell talking about Carolina's interest in Bo Horvat. Of course, obviously, Horvat ends up going to the Islanders. Uh, and here's what Gentilly had to say and Waddell had to say. Uh, it didn't work out, Waddell said, for cut and dry reasons. Canucks GM Patrick Alvine was gunning for the highest first-round pick possible. And the Islanders, post-Horvat bump aside, are probably going to finish with a worse record, whether this season or next. Here's what Waddell says. He was trying to get the highest first-round pick that he possibly could get. He was right up front about that from the start. Our pick's going to be hopefully someplace in the late 20s or the 30s. He set out with that as a mission and a goal, and he accomplished it. So I give him credit for that. And that really is some of the most direct confirmation we've had about the priorities the Canucks had. So it wasn't that they valued Beauvillier as a first-round pick? <laughs> Atu Ratu was not the key to the deal? I mean, I think they really like Atu Ratu. Well, sure, but I, I mean... The priority, you know, the, like at the end of the day, the Carolina Hurricanes, they don't have Aturatu, but they have they have lots Moro of other and Drury and like like they can compete on that easily. What they can't compete with. Right. Four million dollar contract match. Hey, the, the Carolina Hurricanes can compete with that. What they can't compete with was the Canucks wanted the short position against the Islanders. Mm -hmm. To me, what Waddell has revealed is like. The best reason for confidence in Canucks management that we've had since the Tyler Mott trade, the Kuzmenko acquisition, like probably since winning the Kuzmenko Derby, because that's exactly the right way to go about getting it. What what do what do we say on the reaction pod that we did when I was in California and you were in a car I don't in Tofino? What, what did we say? We said at least they got one asset that could isn't likely to, but could tra change the trajectory of this franchise. That was the pick. The fact that Alvin sold out, that that was the priority, the main target, right? Sold out to get that asset. To me, that's good strategy, good execution, sharp stuff from the Canucks and their general manager, who we often criticize. So, in fairness, it's also doff our caps. To it's you, also sir. notable because it is. In contrast with what Jim Rutherford said about looking for players, you know, in that kind of 22 to 25 age range, maybe they didn't work out on their first DLC. Now, he wasn't talking explicitly there, Rutherford, about 
the return for Bo Horvat. That was more just kind of a general strategy, but it's still heartening to see that when they were dealing with their most valuable asset far and away in Bo Horvat, you know, they weren't concerned with, oh, we got to find this 23-year-old center. We got to find this 23-year-old right-handed defenseman. They wanted the highest value asset possible, and they identified that that is a first-round pick. And by the way, that first-round pick, the New York yes, Islanders I, lost again. I know. New York Islanders lost again last night. Uh, Ottawa beat them, which is good because Ottawa continues to separate from the Canucks, and they bring the Islanders down. All of a sudden, the Islanders, 12th worst points percentage in the NHL draft, which is, of course, the magic cutoff line, top 12 protected so this now, year. So now we start looking at that Nashville game that the Canucks play next week and being like, that's a must-lose. <laughs> yes. You know, like... Well, especially because I heard... You're not, uh, just, you're not just fading the Islanders, you're rooting for Nashville in particular. Yeah. Nashville, to me, feels like the most important team. Another, I saw, I forget, I saw somebody point this out on Twitter, but the um, the back-to-back wins for Detroit pushed them up above the Islanders. Right. So that was crucial for the Canucks as well. <laughs> I gotta get those Eastern Conference Lord's teams. work. Yeah. Hey, uh, look, I look, I loved that short position the moment the Canucks bought it. Um, you know, I'm still a little bit torn because... Like, I really like the very top I, of that 2024 class, uh, but man, there are some good To be honest, and I, I threw this out on Twitter, and some people were saying, like, oh, no, we actually don't want it to get to be protected. And, roll. I, think that's and I actually fair. kind of agree. Like, if my. I don't agree. I would have no problem with 13 or 14 this year. Oh, no, no, no. no. I think that's a really, really good outcome. 13 or 14 this year is a homer. Yeah. Fabulous. But, so I can see rooting for that. But, I mean, there is like. There, I, I mean, I, I'm someone who's, like, really comfortable with ambiguity and mm. uncertainty. Like, for me, if you have a shot at the pick commuting and being, you know, a really meaningful asset, like a top five asset even in a week or draft class, even if it's slightly unlikely, I, I mean, I think there's no chance that that's not what you want. You know, there's... um. Like that Levshunov kid in Green Bay, mm-hmm. you know, six foot two right-handed defenseman. This Cole Iserman kid out of the U.S. National Development Team. Like, you know, we're we're talking about guys with a real chance to be franchise changers, and that's without even mentioning probable first overall Macklin Celebrini. Like, there are fabulous prospects available at the very top. I think if, if there's even if there's even a shot at that, like if it's like a, you get a ten percent shot at that. But the most likely outcome is lower upside. I still think you take. That. I think if they're hovering, if the Islanders are hovering in that like eleven to fourteen range, to me that's win win for the Canucks. Like either you get thirteen or fourteen this yeah, year, yeah, that's and right. that's cool, that's or right it rolls over. It. But to me, that's a win win. Or or it rolls over and you have a chance at yeah. a Cam Allen or. And the one thing I will say, Cam Allen. The one thing I will say, nothing. He's uh, good. Yeah. Uh, about the Islanders, if you're looking to next year, like. Why? Why are you scoffing at like a fast skating six foot two right handed defenseman? <laughs> I just Stop love that, that he's your go to example of a prospect everyone well, should know and be salivating over. Well, there was a chance that he was going to be a top five pick, but he hasn't had the best offensive season, so that's going to dent his draft stock, which is perfect. But if you're looking for reasons to short the Islanders next year, like Anders Lee thirty two, Brock Nelson thirty one, Josh Bailey thirty three, Pajot thirty, Kyle Palmieri thirty two. Like there's a lot of guys on the downslope of their career Giddy that are up. that are locked into that roster. Now, if you don't, if you're reluctant to short the Islanders next year, Ilya Sorokin. Yes, 100. <laughs> percent That's that's the counter argument. That is the counter argument. It's a good one, but yeah. we've seen how fickle goaltending can be here. No question. Uh, we got to take a break. 650, 650. Uh, but we will be back for more. It is Canucks talk on Sportsnet 650. 
big opinions and good bets. It's the People Show with Big Nazar. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance, live from the Kintech studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Uh, keep your thoughts coming in. Canucks set to play the Rangers tonight at Rogers Arena. Of course, just played them at Madison Square Garden. Lost 4-3, I believe, there last week. Archer Silov's getting the start, his his debut in the NHL tonight for the Canucks. We didn't really talk much about the, uh, the Rangers side of things in the first segment. I mean, look, we just saw them, so we kind of know what they can do. They have added Vladimir Tarasenko uh, to the lineup since... Uh, that game against the Canucks. Which so. is going to be really fun for us, right? Like, to get a chance to see this new-look Rangers alignment. I love, and this I'm not the first person to comment on this, but the fit with you get Tarasenko and you can plug him with Artemi Panarin. And I know there's concerns about, like, Tarasenko's shot rate and Although all of that. Although it doesn't look like they'll play together tonight. Interesting. At 5 okay. It looks like, uh, looks like Kreider with Zibanejad and Tarasenko. Tarasenko. I just think, to me, if there's a spot where you can plug Tarasenko in in the NHL and expect him to rebound and not get back to his prime because he was such an electric player at his prime, but to rebound and be really productive, I love the fit uh, with the New York Rangers. Well, it helps so, that they have elite playmakers. Like, exactly. The thing that Tarasenko can still do. You know, I often say like there's players that can set the table and players that can mm. eat. <laughs> right? Uh, Tarasenko can still eat. I just don't know that he's bringing his own cutlery to the meal <laughs> anymore. Um, one thing that I'm excited about seeing tonight, I think, is especially in light of the Vancouver work on the defensive side at practice yesterday, like, because the game was close, because it wasn't a laugher, I think people really sort of ignored, in my opinion anyway, just how poorly the Canucks played defensively against the Rangers, um in Madison Square Garden or at Madison Square Garden last week. The Rangers, particularly when they were building their 3-1 lead, especially in the second period, like it was a, a bit of a laugher in terms of what they were able to generate and how consistently they were able to do it. Um, so, you know, I think this is a, that's a tough spot for Seelovs, right? Like that's sort of adds to my concern, but also a good way to test out you know, what what sort of progress Vancouver is able to make. And, you know, it's going to be slow progress. This team's got a chance to be historically bad defensively, right? Like the, the, the over four goals against per game stat, no team's done that over 82 games since the imposition of the hard cap. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> like there's a chance that this is truly a historically bad defensive team. But, um, but yeah, so I think the Rangers pose a, an interesting threat. One guy who won't be in the lineup tonight that I just want to chat about because I had sort of an interesting discussion on Twitter that I think illustrates a lot of the sort of big picture concepts we like to discuss around the Canucks. Um, his name is Vitaly Kratsov, and he's a out-of-favor former top-ten pick, right? Like, drafted not long after Elias Pettersson, 
No, oh, no. Next, the next draft. Right, the next draft. Same draft Excuse as Quinn me. Hughes. Just a couple p- picks after Quinn Hughes. Who's the guy in my mind then? Anyway, just a couple picks after Quinn Hughes, who hasn't quite managed to carve out a regular spot for himself in the New York Rangers lineup. Obviously, we know he was a defected player for a while, went back to the KHL. He, he's returned to New York this year. He's played 28 games. He's got six points. Still 23. He's six foot three. Are you thinking of Elias Anderson in the, the Elias Pettersson draft? Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, the uh, yeah, or, or maybe I'm I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking Denisenko. I don't know. My, my my brain is like literally seeing it as like nameplates on draft sweaters. So the um, and anyway, the the Kratzoff thing's interesting because the Rangers are probably going to deal him and find him a change of scenery, and that would seem to fit the bill with what the Canucks are sort of looking for, right? That, like, guy who hasn't been full value on his ELC, uh, but maybe could be more for Vancouver than he has been for his current team. And so I want to discuss this because if the cost, even if it was a low acquisition cost, like, let's say it's a third-round pick or a fourth-round pick, which is what the speculation is, um, you know, the popular speculation is that Kratzov's likely to cost a, a team trading for him. Even at a pretty low price, Kratsov to me should be a non-target for the Canucks. And and I want to explain why, because it's not as simple as like, Kratsov's good. Third round pick may not even be as good as Kratsov. Let's see if the Canucks can land him. Like, even though I'm fading the idea that Kratsov's very good or or even has a chance to be very good, these are these types of acquisitions, these like age gap type acquisitions. Mm-hmm particularly with what what this season has revealed about the Canucks are so low upside for for an for an interesting reason that I think is worth getting into and that we're seeing play out in real time with Ethan Bear. Okay? Kratsov's on the last year of a deal and will be arbitration eligible after the season. Now he hasn't accomplished a ton, but if you acquire him and he hits for you, you know, say we're say we're looking at like uh six goals, eight assists across twenty five games, something like that. Already, you're looking at a one one point two five million dollar player on a on a one year show me deal. Right away, like right away, it's not like you're getting a guy who's going to be cheap and cost controlled for you for many years to come. The Canucks, in my view, are several years away from being meaningfully good, mm-hmm. which means that Kratsov may go through his entire statistical prime before he's ready to contribute to a really good Canucks team. And more importantly, because that was a bit of a digression. On the other side of a one-year show-me deal, say he hits for you, 20 goals, 40 that, points. Yeah, the concern for me wouldn't be next year. It would be yeah. you give him a, a prime, because you've gone out and acquired him now, and he's like one of the pieces you've brought in, so you're primed to go out and give him a really nice spot in the lineup, and if he is on that one-year deal, which he's probably going to be, he's going to sign a one-year yeah. show-me deal for next year, then you're in a situation where... Okay, all of a sudden now you've got this 24-year-old who has a short track record, but also because of arbitration and the dynamics, is poised to make actually a so, pretty decent chunk so of change. If it even works for you, then you're talking about committing, what, three and a half, four million in two seasons to a middle six guy. Yeah, and like, a middle six winger. Right, <laughs> right. So the upside is so limited because your runway, your runway with uh, uh, of having like an efficient contract is like a year or two. Right? That doesn't make sense for the Canucks by any means. Like, I'd rather have, and I think this team should rather have, a lower chance, even a far lower chance, of mining one of those diamond in the rough guys in the middle rounds 
who, you know, you're able to bring in. And at 21, they have three years on their Mm -hmm. entry-level deal and then multiple years of pre-arb cost control beyond that. Like, that's the sort of hit that this team needs far more than, like, a higher probability of landing an NHL player who's, you know, probably a middle six guy if they hit and expensive right away. And, and again, this is the Ethan Bear example, right? Bear for a fifth-round pick, you do that every time. Every time. In a vacuum. But ultimately, the Canucks are going to encounter, and they've already started extension talks, and I think those are going to be difficult to accomplish. You're already bumping into an area where, you know, Bear's a $3 million player next year. Right? If you want to go long on Bear, you have to be confident that he's a top-four guy. Right? And in a world where Mikey Anderson, the Los Angeles King's first pair lefty who just got a seven-year or eight-year eight year contract. Extension, yep. Like, he got an eight-year contract at four, four million. He's playing top pair minutes. Like, I don't think you should feel confident that Bear's going to provide more value to you than Mikey Anderson, but Bear's going to cost as much as Mikey Anderson. Right? Anderson just sold three RFA years. Bear's only got one to sell. Like, the upside, even on that deal is lower than the fifth-round pick they traded. You know, like, for this team, given how far away they are and given how much talent they need to move the needle, the draft picks, the the raw futures, the looking down the line, even though it flies in the face of a lot of what this management group has said, even though it flies in the face of some of their moves, including, you know, this age-gap strategy that they've employed in acquiring Stillman and Dermott and Bear and Jack Stadnika, uh, for Myronberg in that case, not a draft pick. Like, the higher upside hits down the line matter more for this team. The age gap strategy falls apart in part because while you gain certainty, you actually lose upside mm. by sacrificing the volume of picks you're able to make. That's the sort of stuff that's going to keep Vancouver stuck. And I thought the Kratzov example was a good way of illustrating that. You know, like. Well, and that was one of the other things I liked about the return for Horvat. Was that yeah? It was the first round pick, but even the the prospect young player, you know, Atu Ratu is in his first year of his ELC. Like you do have runway of him having upside and being cost controlled, and then okay, if he comes in, you still have a chance to sign him to a long term team friendly deal if everything goes the way you're wanting. That's a big part of the attraction with uh, with Atu Ratu for me, and I agree. Look, if if he was a defender or a center, maybe it's a different argument, although I still think these are major concerns and you have to be convinced that there's enough upside there. But again, just for another winger, for another winger with relatively limited uh, upside or not star upside anyways at this point on his career to bring in, it doesn't make a ton of sense uh, to me at this point. 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line. It is a Canucks game day. Let's hear from Canucks head coach Rick talk it here he is speaking to the media uh, earlier today yeah I, it's it's a little bit my fault it's not doom and gloom i mean if you look i'm not a like i like analysts we're huge but we've really made some strides analytically um so i wanted the players to understand that we you know you know i know the stats sometimes i think gretzky said stats are for losers which was pretty funny <laughs> he said that to me once but you know i think you know things like we're third in the league last eight games and ozone possession and expected goals were let like these are pretty good stats so there is positives um but we have to shore up some obviously some stuff on the ice um during the game so um i want them to be understand that they've made some strides there's positives and uh you know we got to get a couple individuals playing better we we know that but as a team i think uh, the guys have been buying in this team still really has defensive issues which we've seen all season long we've seen it for a couple of seasons now when you look at the team as a whole 
is a bigger task than you originally anticipated? Well, I, I think we have to have more conviction in defending. But I think, you know, there's some times where I think we've done a nice job and, you know, all of a sudden we're down 2 nothing, and there's, you know, and not to blame the goalies, you know, there's only been three shots after 10, but, like, we've done a good job there. So, but to me, it's the egregious mistakes. Like, it's if a guy makes a mistake, it's the second guy that makes even a worse mistake, and then it's in your net. So if we can shore up, yeah, it's a game of mistakes. People make mistakes. It's just the severity of it where we kind of get, we're on the wrong side of it. How do you plan to use the... If you're willing to share, how do you plan to use your goaltenders for the next few days? Because Demers is maybe backing up Saturday. So as far as uh, Archers and, and Colin here, what do you plan? Yeah, uh, you know, I got to make sure I get a couple of practices for Demers before we put him in. Um, and he's come along great. So, you know, obviously he's going to be in the net soon. And, uh, yeah, I'd like to see the kids see play. Like, I uh, heard a lot of good things about him. And it's probably a good time to, to get him in and see uh, before Demers gets in here. Tonight, yeah, he's got a good shot of playing. Uh, just got to look at a couple of things, but yeah. Uh, what do you hope to see out of Kuzmenko tonight? Uh, any changes to his game? Well, I like this first half of the game. You know, I thought he had some energy. You know, uh, we have a game plan with him, and Sergey's here now. He's spent a lot of time in the video room with him, and I think it helped last game. Um, you know, he's obviously got to work on certain parts of his game. Uh, like I said, it's a long term. It's not short term with him. You know, we got to get him in good skating um, like he's got to move his feet he's really good with the puck but we have to he has to play without the puck and uh, that's something that he's been his attitude has been great he wants to you know him and Sergey have been spent a lot of time together how much of bringing Sergey here was about the fact you've got a couple of Russian players it's not just language it's culture the way they understand the game the way they speak the game was that part of the factor too yeah for sure uh, Sergey's a he's a culture cla- uh, classy high character guy and that we have a couple of Russian guys um, really helps with, with him here. But I'll, I'll just start defense, his, his whole way he approaches things. And, um, you know, I, I think I've seen some improvement in some guys because of the guys. And it's small sample size. I mean, they've only been here a couple of weeks, Sergey and Footy. But they, uh, just the way they teach, it's a very positive style. Um, JT and, and Luke both talked about defense being a mindset. It's something that you want to have to do. You've played the game. You've been alongside teammates who who either wanted to play defense or not. Are you trying to reprogram some guys here to think this is the way that we have to play, and are they capable of playing that way? Well, you can't win, you know, without good defense. And, and that's a, a – I use the word conviction. Uh, we're in our spots, but there's a way of you – know, you know, we we have a, good, a lot of good teachers here and the technique and, and all that, but there's also the battle and the will, um, you know, to squash a cycle. You know, we got to squash some more cycles. The wingers up top – Got to be a little bit more straight line, stop and start, and you got to block some shots. Like, I, you know, it seems like we're getting a lot of our shots blocked. We're not blocking enough shots up top, and I think that's a, a little bit of a will and stop and start game. Um, that's that's his habits. You know, that's just you know whether it's you know months and months doing the same thing. It's going to take a while to to make guys understand a stop and start game. Um, we'll make the other stuff and the other end more fun to play because you have the puck more. So I think we just got to have a and they're right. You know, we have to have a little bit of a better conviction when we do uh, um, defend.
I know it's only been a few games and there is a language barrier, as you mentioned, but have you been able to establish a connection with Kuzmenko at all? And can you describe what that's been like? Uh, great. He's, uh, he's been in my office the last three, four days, uh, especially with Sergey here. Uh, he's got the marker out and he's asking questions. Hey, where should I go in these positions? And that's what I like. He's, he's asking questions. So there's really no language barrier in the sense you can do it other ways. And plus, Sergey's here. So, um, and he's, he's, he's not bad English. He's starting to learn some of our t- t- uh, terminology. And finally, um, you know, new coach, new system, it's a transition. Can you tell me, talk to me a little bit about your tolerance when it comes to growing pains? I imagine you don't want to see the result that you saw last game, but can you talk to me about your tolerance. Well, I got to be careful because I, as bad as it the, the says six to one, I mean, there were some good things, you know, the power play we had the, we had in their end for four minutes. We missed an empty net. We had three or four crossbar posts. I mean, that's reality. If a couple go in, it's three three. You know, maybe confidence level comes in some guys. Um, so you got to be careful. I don't think it was as bad as the score. But listen, you know, at the end of the day, the results do matter. But uh, just as long as it doesn't hamper the, you know, guys get frustrated and it hampers the process. That is Canucks head coach Rick Tockett before his team takes on the Rangers tonight at Rogers Arena. Hey, there were some positives against the Red Wings transfer. Stats are for losers. Here's a bunch that are the lamest ones imaginable. Ozone possession time? Come on. That one's for losers, for sure. <laughs> on that, we can agree. I do like... Um, <laughs> this was something... Remember, there was one time in particular where the Canucks had a really bad loss under Bruce Boudreaux, and he was like pretty no-holds-barred after the game, very dejected, very down about how his team played. And then the next day, it was at, at the practice for the team. It was okay. I'm going to try to find the positives. Here's what we're doing well. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to help them. And that was almost a similar version of that for Tockett, right? Where it was like, yeah, we lost six one, but actually there were some really positive things against the Detroit Red Wings. I can't make. Got to make sure the guys don't get too down. He's going through the same cycle, going through the same process. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, we'll see if it comes after games at some point, though, right? Because so far, when when the Canucks have lost and played really badly, it's just been like shoveling dirt on them. <laughs> we'll Which, know. We'll know fair, the cycle. We'll fair know, enough. Yeah, we'll know. I, the, we'll, I, I get it. We'll know the cycle is complete when that happens. Yes, we absolutely will. Uh, six fifty. Six fifty. Continue to get your thoughts in. Uh, a little. A few on uh, Kratzoff coming in that we might uh, get to at some point in the show. But coming up next, uh, he writes for the Athletic. You hear him here regularly on the station. Our pal Harmon Dial will join the show. That's coming up next. It is Canucks Talk on Sportsnet six fifty. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. It's Jamie Dodd. It's Thomas Drance. Canucks Talk, as always, brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Harmon Dial from The Athletic is going to join us here in just a moment we're or gonna, so. We're going to dial him up. We are going to dial him up. Yes, very good. Um, Was it? I'm glad you got it. I'm, <laughs> glad, I'm glad you made a point of saying that one. Like, oh, I got something to say. 
We're going <laughs> to dial them up. All right, great. Yep. Uh, just quickly before we get uh, Harm on the line here, you know, we were talking about Kratsov and uh, you were given the reasons why you don't like him as a, a an acquisition for the Canucks, even at a relatively low cost. Uh, Devin texts in, if an RFA hits on a one-year show-me deal, you can always flip them at the deadline for a better pick. And we had a couple people text in, well, okay, if he improves, can you potentially trade him down the line? I don't disagree with that idea, but again, that gets to, can the Canucks start approaching things more as value plays rather as looking at as we're going to acquire this player to plug a hole in our lineup? If they do start approaching their strategy and or, or adopting the strategy of we're going to buy low on guys, try to improve their value, and then sell high, then yeah, I can see that making a lot of sense. I just don't see a lot of evidence that they're going to do that sort of thing. Yeah, though, you know, we'll see. Like, the fact that they started negotiations with Bear prior to the deadline at least suggests working toward it, at least suggests keeping an eye on you know, the, the the possibility that Bear should be treated as an expiring, like a raw expiring as opposed to an RFA given this team's position. And that's a really interesting spot to be in because I'll tell you this, I do think at the very least Bear has gone up in value. 100%. Well, like, he, wasn't, he wasn't playing and now he's playing. So you got to well, think there's some playing, increased value Now he's there. playing a lot. Yeah. Now he's playing top four minutes. So, you know, in a world where Jacob Magna is worth a fourth and – um, Mikkel is worth a third, you know, I, that seems like a reasonable range for Bear to be at, and that's provided that the team would view him also as like a non-tender candidate as opposed to a long-term fit. So, you know, at the very least, they've upped, like it's a good bet in that it's, you know, whether it pays off for them or not, they can cash it. Mm. <laughs> it always always comes back <laughs> to, to the gambling the gambling analogy. No, but, uh, but it's it's but apt in this in this. Situation. It always is in terms of asset valuation, yeah. right? Like you, you know, hockey teams in particular are placing a series of bets at any given moment. Uh, we got Harmon on the line, so I'm gonna I'm gonna get to that now. Sorry, sorry, sorry to cut you off. I know you're just getting going talking about. No, gambling. I was done. Okay, good. I was done. I was looking forward to chatting with Harmon. Uh, now joining us from the Athletic, our guy Harmon Dial. Harm, sorry for making you wait a little bit there. How are you? I'm doing great. I always love hearing uh, Durancer talk yeah. about gambling, and so I'm here <laughs> for all the analogies. It's like he's sitting next to you at the rink. I'm sure. I'm sure you've heard that <laughs> similar things many, well, many times. Actually, those conversations are usually about Div two college basketball. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so the the big news today coming out of Morning Skate was that, uh, and in the wording from Rick Tockett about Archer Silovs was it wasn't a hundred percent definitive, but it was that he has a good chance to play uh, tonight. What's your reaction to the possibility that uh, the 21 year old could make his NHL debut for the Canucks tonight? Yeah, it's interesting because you look at his track record recently and I, I think it's not a bad opportunity to kind of see uh, where he's at. Uh, I think my only worry would be that you're placing him, uh, putting him up against a Rangers team that's an offensive juggernaut, um, especially the top line. I was watching them against uh, Seattle. You had uh, Zibanejad, Tarasenko and Panarin together. I mean, Welcome to the NHL. That'd be one hell of a, a challenge for um, an NHL debut. But overall, with Seelovs, you look at in the summer, for example, was dominant at the World Championships, ended up taking over the reins as Latvia's number one over uh, Elvis Merzlikens, who was really struggling. You look at his um, recent track record in Abbotsford. He's, um, I think, in his last five games, 
allowed two or fewer goals against in all of them and has a couple of shutouts mixed in there. Um, and even in preseason action, when you think back to whether it's been this year or it really stuck out to me even at, at last year's training camp for preseason, uh, he's had some really good uh, showings against NHL uh, level competition. Again, the state, there, there haven't really been any stakes there. But the overall, I guess, uh, the point I'm trying to make is he's shown glimpses, um, he's shown potential, and given that he's been hot recently in, in Abbotsford and has found traction, it's not a bad, um, I think, way for the organization to kind of just get a look at, at where he's at. I don't think he's necessarily um, necessarily going to be ready to help you on a full-time basis uh, soon, but it, it at least gets you a sense of, okay, how does he look in an NHL environment and, and how does that perhaps affect our, um, uh, our, our plans uh, on him moving forward? Because I do think the organization is overall pretty high on him. Harmon, how high are you on him and how much do you weight the 902 AHL career save percentage in evaluating sort of his NHL upside going forward here? Yeah, I think I'm pretty pretty high on him. I don't know what the ceiling is, and goalies definitely aren't uh, aren't my forte. But the people that I trust, um, who know these goaltenders well, seem to seem to think that there might be something there. Um, now, that's not to necessarily say that he has starter upside. Um, he may, but I think we're still waiting to see. He's a raw product, right? He was drafted out of, out of the sixth round. He always had really athletic tools. Uh, Ian Clark really liked working with him. So I think my my initial impression was that it it would be a bit of a longer sort of track, a longer sort of project to get him to the NHL. Um, and I think I'm not I'm not worried about the fact that he doesn't necessarily have stellar stats in the NHL yet, just because he's still only 21 and goaltenders often take uh, take time. But absolutely, I think he's an intriguing prospect in their system. I think. Um, he's an intriguing bet. Um, I wouldn't necessarily be counting on him as a goalie of the future or anything like that, though. How worried are you about him being thrown in? Like, with Hoaglander and Aturatu still on the farm, feels like the club's taking a cautious approach elsewhere, and yet it's a pretty tough spot to put a young goaltender yeah, into his first NHL game against a Rangers team that's relatively loaded, especially uh, dangerous on the power play. How worried are you about how he'll handle tonight and sort of the risk, um, the psychic risk of, of throwing him in prematurely? Yeah, that's where, it, the, for me, it was like you mentioned the Rangers thing, where it's like that's that's an offensive juggernaut at 5-on-5 five five and power play. I could understand it a bit better if you're like, okay, maybe if we really want to get a look at uh, – uh, C-Lobs in an NHL environment, maybe you, you throw him um, uh, up against Philly on Saturday, right? Against a, a much uh, much easier opponent where they don't, where they don't necessarily have um, um, elite offensive uh, offensive weapons. Wow, what a I, mean I think... thing to say about Wade Allison. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, it comes down to your understanding of the player's psychology. Um, because I, I do think because he's on a hot streak, maybe you have a bit more faith that he's in a flow, that he's in a rhythm, um, that he can handle this sort of adversity. And I think it's like the organization's going to know much more about how he's wired mentally than we will. And if he's a pretty resilient guy and you're looking at it as a kind of way where it's like Demko's going to be back really soon anyway. And if we've only got a, sh- 
thought what well, this one shot to give him a chance um and it's just the the one game just to uh, you know build let him build that experience um then then I can understand i think I think it comes down to the organization's got got to be sure about um how resilient they feel he is and and their understanding of whether um let's say it does go poorly how that would affect him uh moving forward one thing i'm going to be fascinated to watch tonight Harmon, is how the rest of the team responds and plays in front of archer Silovs. and i i do drance and i were talking about this earlier in the show i do even wonder if there's an element from the canucks perspective of almost testing the team with this seeing how they play with a, a a young goalie making his nhl debut because if they don't improve on a lot of the things that they showed against Detroit, and that goes, you know, not just defensive coverage, but also their body language, their professionalism. If they don't improve on that stuff with Silovs and Net for his debut, I think that's uh, very, very alarming. I think they would. Be- I think they'll bounce back. I, you know, at least in terms of their effort and engagement, because when you look at that Detroit game, I thought they were okay for two periods. I, you know, it wasn't necessarily going great, but it was really kind of the last 20 minutes where the wheels fell off the bus. And I think a lot of the problems were um, like, when you look at the, the lazy line change, when you look at um, the way they were kind of hunting pucks, like you could almost see them kind of quitting. And when you follow that up with just how pissed off talk, it sounded after the game, the way he worked them in practice and the fact that he's um, that he's still a, a really new coach. So he's, he's going to be able to sort of have that, uh, that impact. Plus, you now have um, a, a goalie potentially making his NHL debut here. I, I'd expect them, at least in terms of their energy levels, their their quickness, um, the urgency with which they try and make plays with the puck. I expect that the, that those details will be uh, will be better tonight. What have you thought about Tockett's approach to you know? This is twice now that they've practiced the day before the game and then not had a morning skate the day of the game. And of course, yesterday it was the back to grade school practice and talk had even said, you know, Hey, if we have these tough practices and maybe they don't have uh, their top level of energy for the game, so be it. That's what it has to be right now. What do you think about the approach that talk is bringing to kind of teaching and, and practicing with the team right now? Yeah, it's, I think it's a reflection of when he, he over, he barely had any practice time. And for his, much as you know guys can can have morning skates and, and and whatnot i think you those aren't really opportunities to sort of teach and instill some of the mindsets that uh talk clearly wants to preach in terms of puck management defensive details and so i think especially with the Canucks basically being out of uh out, out of the playoffs that's not going to happen he's in a position where he can now focus on okay i don't have to necessarily worry about the wins and losses this season it's about starting to overhaul um, a lot of the standards that we expect out of guys. It's about teaching. And I think because of that, um, he's placing a greater emphasis on, on practice practices as opposed to morning skates. And I think he's, he's clearly okay with the idea of um, if I'm able to work, work these guys and get them to understand how I want them to play and clean up a lot of these areas where um, you have these segments where the team just kind of, starts losing all, all of the details with which they play. They don't win wall battles. They aren't connected at all. Um, I, I think he really clearly values teaching at this point, and it was surprising to me, yeah. Like, when they came back from the road trip, um, I know that on that New York trip, um, you're obviously not traveling a whole lot. 
and the Saturday game was uh, a nooner Eastern. So the team would have gotten back at a reasonable time on Saturday, but still, usually that's almost always a day off on a Sunday. Mm. Um, so I, I think that like, I've been surprised by the approach a little bit for sure. Um, but I can understand why talk it's going in that direction. Harmon, does it concern you that so much of what Rick Tockett's talked about emphasizing um, from line changes to, you know, c- defensive sort of will compete, like the feels like it's basic professionalism stuff. Does it concern you that that seems to be needed by this group? Yeah, I, I, I think we've seen it under three different head coaches now, right? Where they'll, they'll have these stretches where, when they're engaged and when they're motivated, when they have confidence, they can, it feels like they can hang with anybody. But then when, when things start to just like go against them, they oftentimes like you can see just the team kind of deflating and that not only affects sort of their performance, the output, but you can see it affect their sort of um, like, their 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 energy their effort and and I think there have been too many occasions this season overall for example like this team's been blown out on so many occasions on home ice it's a, and, and maybe this doesn't necessarily relate to just basic professionalism but it does bother me a little bit that we haven't seen more of a response emotionally from from players in certain situations it's like they go down easy, easily without a whimper where it's like. And I'm not saying that in a third period in, in, in those sorts of situations when it's a blowout that you need to, you know, start fighting guys or anything, but you don't like, it, it's like guys aren't even, are, aren't even hitting. Nobody's trying to create a spark. Um, there's just nothing really going for them. And, th- and there are a lot of situations where, um, you know, big hit. And I think, you know, guys maybe aren't responding as much. I, I just would like to see in those situations them maybe show that they're that if hey if we're if we're going to go down on home ice and get embarrassed, at least we're going to go out with with a fight, and at least we're going to um, I, I mean show something, right? Because it just feels like a lot of times you get to the third period at Rogers Arena and they're lifeless and there's no effort, um, and that to me, yeah, it is just as concerning as um, as the lack of results, and I think that's exactly what talk it is is trying to come in and um and overhaul right when you when you when you, when you hear about practice habits and, and trying to raise um the intensity of that i think he's, he's trying to establish that new standard um where you can't just pick and choose when you want to go all out that has to be the the standard of, of what you expect night in night out doesn't matter what the score is um, because that's what um, that's what winning teams. That's how that's how they conduct and operate themselves. They're not on and off. Harmon, Don Waddell talked to our colleagues at the Athletic um, for the podcast, and uh, Sean Gentilly wrote one of those helpful companion pieces. Um, and in it, he discussed his club's interest and in failure to acquire Bo Horvat, noting that in pursuit of Horvat. And credit to him, Patrick Alvin was preoccupied primarily with getting a first-round pick that was as high as possible. Um, and, and that, in part, explains why the Carolina Hurricanes were unable to be players. Um, what's your reaction to that, particularly given that a lot of Alvin's commentary about it has been to hype up Beauvillier or you know describe the Aturatu inclusion as uh, a deal-breaker, um, and yet... 
Waddell's formulation suggests that really the first round pick was the prize. Yeah, I, you know, overall as a philosophy, I like hearing that. Uh, I think it, it is it is interesting because with Horvat, he was obviously sort of dealt in a rental type of situation, and when you have uh, when you have a spot like that, I think teams are always reluctant to sort of um, give up un- unless you're a team like the Islanders, where you um, where you maybe don't have. Um, a great, as many grade A prospects, like teams overall aren't really going to be wanting to, to give up their best prospect for a rental, right? And you even hear, um, even sometimes when there are players with term, like we've heard the reports now that um, the Kings aren't going to include Brant Clark or Quinton Byfield in any of their sort of trade uh, trade discussions, that they're non-starters, right? So I think if you accept the premise that teams generally aren't going to trade their best prospects for a player like Bo Horvat, then I can understand like why, from management's perspective, you're thinking, okay, what's the highest ceiling asset we can get in terms of landing a potential home run? And that's where we're seeing it now unfold, especially with the Islanders. Sort of, they had won a couple uh, once Horvat initially came, and it looked like they were starting to build momentum, but they've started sliding again and. Um, they're in a spot now where absolutely that first-round pick is the highest ceiling asset uh, from that Horvat package. So I actually like that they took that philosophy and approach because, again, I do generally think that it's sometimes difficult to land uh, another team's best pro- another team's best prospect unless it's the Islanders, where uh, even uh, even a player like Aturatu, he's he's a really solid prospect, but he's not quite um, an elite one. We were talking about Vitaly Kratsov uh, on the other side before you joined us um, and whether or not he made sense for the Canucks as a target. Um, what, what are your thoughts on trading draft picks at this juncture for, for a 23-year-old, uh, you know, recent top 10 pick, but uh, is that the sort of move that makes sense for the Canucks at this point? Uh, I'm not a big fan, personally, of uh, Kratsov. I, I just haven't seen enough in his uh, track record to be convinced that this Canucks team, which is already kind of operating um, or already has in years past because of the last administration has operated a deficit of draft picks um, that they should be taking. Like, in my opinion, if, if you're going to take these flyers, you have to be very, very certain about the player that you're getting. And it has to sort of be a cost that, that really makes sense. Now, I don't think, in this case with the Rangers, that it would take a lot, but I just don't think that there's enough bang for buck there to justify um, giving up, uh, you know, let's say a, a third round pick when, again, the Benning, the Benning regime for so many years used to just give out second and third round picks like candy uh, for a lot of these high pedigree sort of 22, 23, 24-year-olds that for the most part didn't really... Uh, pan out because you know it's it's easy to sort of look at um, the second and third round pick and say well you know there's no guarantee that those players hit either and that's very true but the thing is if you compile enough of them and you and you keep them there's also the shot that there's like an upside there that you don't have with a lot of these reclamation projects if that makes sense right like for example when the when the Canucks go and they tr- and they traded a second round pick for Sven Berchi. Right, and that's actually probably a case where the reclamation project actually kind of worked out, where Barrett provided middle six value. Um, well, that second round pick turned into Rasmus Anderson, a right shot top pair defenseman. Now, 
a second round pick more often than not obviously isn't going to turn into Anderson, but there's always that crack. And if you start throwing away your lottery tickets, you're not in, you're, you're never going to put yourself uh, in a position to actually sort of get lucky and, and, and find yourself in Anderson or even in, in the Canucks situation, you know, Demko came out of the set, came out of the second round, Hoaglander came out of the second round. Right. So um, I think the, the biggest reason that I'm usually against a lot of these, um, uh, reclamation sort of project ideas, especially when it comes to, to players that are sort of 23 and, and haven't shown a lot yet, is I just don't think that the upside, I, I, I just think that the upside isn't, um, isn't high enough to justify continuing to give up draft picks. A few more minutes here with Harmon Dial of the Athletic Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. And Harmon, one of the big discussion points for Canucks fans this week has been the play of Oliver Ekman Larson, which has taken such a step back from where it was last year in his first season with the Canucks. We all know about the contract. What are you seeing from Oliver Ekman Larson right now, and what are the Canucks options with him going forward? Yeah, it's really concerning seeing the way that he gets burned off the rush. Dylan Larkin. I mean, on that uh, on the power play goal that the Red Wings scored, I believe in the first period. Yeah, there was the Miller turnover, but before that, it was unreal. Kind of seeing Larkin just carve carve through the defense and get around uh, Ekman Larson and drive to the net. Considering that, like Ekman Larson backed up quite a bit, and there was a lot of space for for Larkin to to kind of have to cover to get behind. Um, oh yeah, so that's really concerning to me because last season I actually thought that there were moments where he'd defend the rush competently, like he could angle guys, he could funnel them to the outside, rub them out against the boards, and the agility, the ability to pivot, wasn't nearly as much of a concern as it kind of um, as it kind of is right now. So that that to me is is like just stands out so much because. We've seen, especially now with uh, with Luke Shen, like those two together, there isn't enough foot speed for them to be able to handle any fast lines. Uh, consistently, it seems like at least one or two of those guys are, are getting caught and forwards find it so easy to get behind them and generate a lot of these odd man rushes. So for OEL right now, I think I just think overall you've got to play him um, with – you know, like, and this is where it's tough too. I, I, I think it's time for them to go back to, um, despite how well Hughes and Bear have played, um, I'd, I'd like to go back to Hugh Shen and, and OEL Bear, not only to help uh, OEL out and give him a, a partner who can actually move, but in Shen's case, like, I don't want my best, um, yeah, arguably my best trade ship at the deadline looking, like, like I don't want to staple him to OEL when he's struggling this pooling. Right, and especially when their skill sets don't necessarily complement each other, so um, it's like it's it's a really tough spot that the Canucks are in with OEL, short and long term. Hey, Harmon, um, excuse me. <laughs> Successful Dortmund counterattack. Um, <laughs> wanted to uh, wanted to ask you a question because you asked Rick Talkett about this at his introductory press conference, and I think it was a concern you and I both shared when the Canucks hired him. Right, which was the Arizona Coyotes played extraordinarily negative defensive hockey. Like throwback negative defensive hockey when he was their head coach. Was that personnel? Was that philosophy? Does it in any way concern you that for all the changes that the club has made elsewhere, Shen OEL, 
despite their poor game against Detroit, has remained constant that this is like a, a sign of things to come from Tockett's overall approach or too early to say? How do you feel about it? I think it's too early to say. I think, like, the other thing, too, is, and maybe maybe it's just a reflection of the fact that he hasn't had, um, pract- like, practiced a lot of practice time with the team up until recently, and maybe he hasn't had a chance to instill um, a lot of those changes. But early on, I was glad, at least e- even looking at the New York road trip, that, he, you know, he didn't tinker too much in trying to have them – all of a sudden, for example, forecheck really conservatively. Um, it seemed like, you know, a lot of those games against the Devils, the Rangers, the Islanders, the, you know, talk, it didn't like still sort of gave them the green light to, to play this aggressive style, hunt pox, have deep pinching. So I, I was glad that he didn't all of a sudden say, all right, guys, park the bus and, and we're not even going to chase the puck and, and we're going to try and win games 2-1. Um, you know, so I'm glad that he hasn't gone down that route yet. I'd say in terms of his sort of defensive mining coaching style, I'm, I'm more interested or I don't know if concerns the right way to see the impact that it has on the development of, of some of their younger, um, younger players. For example, when you look at, um, Nils Hoaglander, right? How does he sort of fit into, the organization's plans now because he is a sort of player where in terms of his defensive details, there's work to be done in terms of his puck management. It's a work in progress. He's a high risk sort of player. There are kinks to iron out when Hoaglander eventually comes up is talking going to look at a player like that and not be able to develop. him. Um, especially because when you go back to talk, it's time in Arizona. I think we saw a lot of examples of young players who didn't really take the next step, right? Anthony Duclair, um, didn't really didn't really find his fit with the Coyotes and his Tockett and with Delt. Um, you had uh, Dylan Strom couldn't really find his fit. Similar sort of style in terms of a lot of offensive talent, but a little high risk defensively. Didn't work out and was shipped out to uh, to Chicago. Um, we we saw Clayton Keller. His point total started exploding the first year after Tockett left. Um, you look at um, Lawson Kraus. His goal totals. He was sort of he. You know, he was really just a bottom six grinder until recently. Talk it leaves, and now, and now all of a sudden, he's had some of the best offensive seasons of his career. So that's where, when I look at Hoaglander, when I look at Pod Coles, even for an older guy like Kuzmenko now, and there's been a lot of conversation about his role, um, and we hear, you know, Talk it isn't a big fan of, of players sort of playing East-West. Um, I, I am a little bit concerned about can those guys sort of develop, can they develop in that sort of environment because – um, for as well as Talkit, I think, has, has guided this team so far in terms of their overall process. Um, his track record overall for developing young players, at least in Arizona, wasn't, uh, wasn't very promising for offensive pieces. Harm, really appreciate the time, man. We'll talk again soon. Great hit, bud. Thanks, guys. That is Harmon Dial, also, of course, uh, covering the Canucks at the Athletic alongside Drancer and hope, yeah, you, hope you bet the over on the, how long I'd keep we'd keep Harmon on the line. Yes, but he was spitting indeed. fire, so it goes. Yeah, we love chatting with Harmon. Yeah, um, and, and I always like to tail Dom, but just perfectly Dom bet the under in this case. So. Perfectly, perfectly timed. Uh, you're you're up with a question as Dortmund scored, <laughs> scored like a the thrilling, a thrilling ninety foot goal. Um, yeah, champ, <laughs> these Champions League broadcasts are great. I'm loving this. Yes, can't they're, wait. they're can't, fantastic. Can't wait for March Madness. <laughs> oh, that is going to be very good. That is going to be very, very We're good. We're going to be like mid-interview well, with Ryan Clark. I'm going to be like, <laughs> Iowa! 
Yes! We'll have to work on the screen set up here in the studio <laughs> for March Madness. All right, final segment coming up. Uh, some more interesting stuff to get into. Keep your thoughts coming in as well. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk, final segment of the show, live from the Kintech studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Be a part of the Canucks Dice and Ice Gala with the Ooh. online auction in support of the Canucks for Kids Fund. You can bid on players' baskets, signed memorabilia, unforgettable experiences, and much more. Visit Canucks, visit Canucks.com slash auction to make your bids now. And Canucks Central, uh, Sat and Dan, will be broadcasting live from the event this week. So go check out Canucks.com slash auction. Uh, so we were talking about the... Um, uh, Vitaly Kratsov, and he's on the market. You might be able to get him for a third or a fourth round pick, and we were kind of going through, you know, it sounds great in theory, but there's actually some cost-related reasons why that doesn't make a ton of sense. Harmon was talking about it a little bit as well. And this text comes in, uh, let's argue for a rebuild by invoking probabilities and then buy into the extremely low probability bets on late round picks. We need as many 1 in 500 bets as we can accrue. And obviously a lot of sarcasm there from the unsigned Texter, look, of course, we all know that as the draft goes on, your chance of finding a player or an impact player decreases dramatically, but it's not zero. It's not close to zero. It's not one in 500. It's meaningful. And you know, you know how you can tell it's meaningful that teams trade players for fourth and fifth round and sixth round picks all the time because they know there is a tangible value. It's not massive. It's not a guarantee, but there is tangible value to making picks in those rounds. But it's also not one in 500. No. It's like, you know, it depends how you want to um, how you want to sort of calculate it. But in terms of, like, being an NHL player, even by the seventh round, you're still talking about one in ten. You're still talking about three players around that matter. And in the third and fourth round, you're talking about one in four, one in five. Not... I mean, that's it's not 500 to 1, and we have to stop thinking about it in those terms, right? Like, think about it this way. A third-round pick or a fourth-round pick is 0.25% of a player. Like, li <laughs> literally, think about it that way. Like, think about how if you have three th third- or fourth-round picks, right, or four third- or fourth-round picks, you're probably getting a guy mm -hmm. in three, three years who's cost-controlled and on and on, right? And, and there's at least a chance within that, that you're getting like multiple ones. So every time you deal a third or fourth round pick for a guy who's like at best a middle six winger based on what they've accomplished so far in their skating deficiencies, you're losing the ability to like cobble together, you know, to go back to our Zord talk, like the mega Zord one player, you know, which you need, which you can build if you accrue those picks, right? That, that That's the way to think about it. I think a lot of the, um, for every four mid round picks, you get one, the, Probability distaste was. for non-premium draft picks. You know, I think it's called the endowment effect. Yeah, right. Well, the the idea in in economics, more. you value what you already have. Because if you yeah. flipped it around, like let's use the Luke Shen example, okay? And there's people who say no, don't don't trade Luke Shen. Find a way to bring him back. Let's say Luke Shen was going to go for a third round pick. 
if you were to trade the Canucks third round pick for a 33 year old expiring UFA defenseman, everyone pretty much universally would recognize that's a silly thing to do. You shouldn't do that. The third round pick is more valuable to you than that player. Now, I understand with Luke Shen, there's something, there's specific elements to the player and his desire to be here, and you know him and you have the relationship that does increase his value to you specifically. But just in general, people would intuitively understand that no, the Canucks should not be spending third and fourth round draft picks on pending UFAs. But then all of a sudden, when you're talking about trading, even a Tyler Mott last year, right? Like, well, why did they trade him if that's all they're going to get? Well, either the pick is good or is it not? It's not, right? Either it's valuable to have or it's not valuable to have. And I think if you flip it, if you just do the thought experiment, right, of flip it around and think, what would you say if the Canucks were giving this pick away for a player? You'd probably rightfully be upset because they need to accrue picks. So the, um, I, you know, I would say this is less endowment effect. For me, endowment effect is like holding on to like a prospect sure. like Jack Rathbone or a Jonah Gadjevich after the World Juniors as opposed to like monetizing them when their value might be high. Uh, for me, like, it, it, you know, within within the concept of prospect theory, aptly named, uh-huh. right, um, there's the certainty effect, right? And the certainty effect talks about how otherwise rational actors experience a sensation of displeasure when they perceive that something they hold is losing value, mm. right? And that feeling of displeasure is amplified significantly when what you're losing is from a from a like pool of variables which are considered certain versus a pool of variables which are considered uncertain. You see what I'm saying? So it's like it's like you have um, five blueberries and you're going to lose two if it rains tomorrow. Once it rains tomorrow, you will overrate that as opposed to you know. You, you have the possibility of getting five blueberries if it rains. Right. <laughs> you know, like you'd, you'd, you'd value the bird in hand above the two in a bush, right? For the Canucks, though, right? Like one bird's not enough to eat. You know, you need two, right? Like one bird's not going to satisfy your hunger. Mm-hmm. You're, you're still going to starve off one bird. So you might as well go for two <laughs> because otherwise, like, what? We, there's no loss there. This is This is where... Sort of the, I think the Canucks need to be like super rational in terms of their approach here. Um, you need, we need, in terms of how we talk about this team, to like completely devalue the, the idea of certainty as something that's positive, right? Certainty is not positive for the Canucks in any shape, form, or otherwise, because the only thing certain is that their path now isn't going to work. Right, like the only thing that I know for sure about the Canucks is if that they is if they continue to run the way they have the last ten years, they're never going anywhere. It's just going to be a slower climb to the bottom or a slower drop to the bottom. Right? Ambiguity is where value can be found and mined, and we need to get really comfortable with it. There's nothing guaranteed about rebuilding. No, the only guarantee is that this isn't going to work. Right. There's nothing guaranteed about a third-round pick for Luke Shen. No. The only thing guaranteed is that extending Luke Shen when he's 33 years old doesn't help this team at all. Right? The, the, there, there is real certainty that the win-now moves will fail. Yeah. There is no certainty that 
future-oriented moves will necessarily succeed, but man, I'd take the possibility of hope over the absolute absence of it. And of course, when we're talking about things like second and third round picks, this is before we even get into the fact that you can trade them, the fact that you can trade them for real players. And we see regularly third and second round picks help teams acquire really good, valuable players that they can slot into their lineup. So yeah, you don't even have to, because the, the other thing that gets brought up is the timeline thing, right? Like, oh, it's going to be five years down the road. Well, first of all, again, that's an exaggeration. Specifically by that's the an Canuck. exaggeration. No, but invoked specifically by the Canucks in explaining the Myrenberg for Studenica trade, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's how this team is viewing players and prospects explicitly. Um, and that's hugely problematic <laughs> because four or five years down the line, like, hey, that could those could be good days. Yeah, and it's also just, that's not, like, (laughs) you don't have to wait that long necessarily. You know what I mean? There are always players who hit earlier than that, even in the second round. That Sometimes it's like, hey, two years down the road, all of a sudden you've got a second round. Niels Hoaglander was a second round player. Well, they say, say, for example, like, Myron Berg, if, you know, he's a good prospect, but it's not going to help us for four or five years. Jack Stanika could help us now. I actually didn't mind that trade. I thought the acquisition price was so low and Stanika has enough upside to to have justified it. But if you then change coaches and Stanika's on the outside looking in, it's like, okay, you've traded a chance at something being meaningful four or five years from now for something that's meaningless in six months. And I'm not saying that's where we're at, right? Like, I still hold out hope for Stanika based on an awful lot of things that I like in his game. But, I mean, there's a chance that we get there really, really quick. Um, you know, that to me is, is tough. Let's talk about one other sort of misnomer that I love to puncture holes in. All right. The cap is going up, up, up. So X bad decision Mm. isn't really a bad decision. You dolt a thing that I'm told while criticizing the efficiency of deals all the time. The cap is tied to HRR. HRR is tied to a variety of deeply unpredictable real world factors. Currency valuations, uh, the absence of a global pandemic, the health of the very business model that sustains the NHL. Diamond Holding Limited, which is the owner and operator of Bally Sports. Now, Bally Sports was acquired um, or, or is like what's left over from Fox Sports, an American RSN network that was sold by Disney uh, several years back following the big Fox Disney merger. Obviously, it always comes back to the mouse. Yes, yes. Diamond Holdings has filed for bankruptcy. Now, this was expected, long expected. Um, But now they're in a 30-day grace period, which is the prelude to a bankruptcy filing. And for now, NHL teams don't seem to be too nervous about this. The Tampa Bay Lightning recently extended with them. They're in talks to extend... Uh, their RSN deals with a variety of other clubs as well. But pain could be coming from this. Here's here's a quote from Diamond Sports Group uh, today per the Associated Press. The company intends to use the 30-day grace period to continue progressing its ongoing discussions with creditors and other key stakeholders regarding potential strategic alternatives and deleveraging transactions to best position Diamond Sports Group for the future. What does all that corporate speak gobbledygook mean? Yep. It means that at least some teams whose, you know, levels of RSN compensation, like their regional broadcast deals, may be up for renegotiation in the not-too-distant future. 
Now, the fact that NHL teams are currently still pursuing deals actively with Bally means, hey, well, we'll get paid in full while they're in bankruptcy, and you know, perhaps we can negotiate a lower point of view or a lower or, or a lower dollar figure as compensation. But in any event, man, like some of these Sun Belt teams are so reliant on this RSN money, like you know, a, a quarter plus of revenue. Mm. This is, or could be anyway extremely grim for the league in a variety of fronts first of all the the overall revenue pie but uh you know and i wouldn't go so far as to say like the solvency of teams um i don't think that's necessarily a threat but i certainly would say the the overall valuation of franchises could be put at risk um as a result of this and not just for the nhl because bally sports is also a significant rights holder across mlb and and oh yeah This is a really scary story, I think, for the prof- the North American professional sports industry. Um, and, and not to fearmonger about it, there's also a variety of ways that this could play out and be a blip. But this is the sorts of things that are going to impact where the upper limit is set over the ne- next four or five years. And this is the sort of reason why betting on the cap going up should be done with extreme reluctance. And like, it, at least, at least it can't be an article of faith. I'm not saying don't bet on yeah, it, and but don't treat it as faith that the cap's just going to explode. And again, I want to get back to the, the diamond uh, sports and the Bally sports thing specifically, but just generally on the rising cap thing. Again, it doesn't just help you. It helps everyone, right? So everyone has that cap space to work with. That puts puts pressure up on salaries. You still want to be making sure you're getting those efficient contracts. It's not a magic bullet for your cap problems just because the salary cap is going up. Now, on the Diamond stuff uh, and their bankruptcy, and as you said, not just affecting NHL teams, but also in the NBA and Major League Baseball, the sense I get from reading about this is that people in all of those sports are tr- still trying to really wrap their heads around exactly what the fallout is going to be and exactly what the financial implications are going to be. The big questions for me are, you know, not just like how much revenue could be on the line here, but I'm also really curious about what the timeline, even in kind of maybe not worst case scenarios, but bad case scenarios. Like what kind of timeline are we talking about here for when it really starts to hit the NHL? Because the NHL, of course, is also in this unique situation where they were artificially keeping the cap below what the HRR formula would dictate it be as the players pay off the debt. That's coming to an end. There's already talks about, well, should we manage the cap a little bit more and smooth it out? When does this Bally stuff start to impact and how does it intersect with those things? I don't have an answer here. I don't even no, have no, really no. like educated guesswork, but that to me is the really big question. And I, I can imagine there's a lot of people at the NHL uh, and with different NHL teams trying to wrap their heads around it as well. Well, and more than anything, the, the people who manage the cap for hockey operations departments get in the habit of worrying a lot, right? And making extremely conservative projections, right? Like I'd, I'd, I'd wager that almost every team around the league is building their like planning and cap model over a $1 million increase for next season. At least in the short term, I'd think that I people think are being very concerned. Until you hear otherwise, you yeah. have to do that. Until it's well, in stone otherwise. And, and sometimes you don't hear otherwise until like yeah, three like, days after the draft. <laughs> like in the old days, in the old days, like when I worked for the Panthers and, and there was the, you know, uh, legal tampering period, also known as the interview period. Yes. Um, you'd, you'd be like m- having meetings 
with with pending free agents, yep. and and there'd be no certainty on what the level of the cap would be. And it was just like, what is, what's what's happening here? This is wild. It's a great way, great way to run a business. <laughs> it's it's wild. So I I wouldn't be shocked if we get back there. And and this is sort of right before the pandemic. You know, what always gets the headlines coming from those board of governors meetings, including the one in Boca Raton that was like a week before the pandemic. And everyone remembers the, you know, $87 million upper limit, right? And it's like six years later, Mm. we're we're probably still two years away from getting close to that, right? Um, So, sorry, it's not six years later. but three three years later. Aggregate might be six years before we get to that level is what I meant. I just stumbled over my words, which I do occasionally. Um. But the most interesting idea that was sort of pitched out of that press conference was the idea of having like a predictable three or four year plan for where the cap goes, right? Mm -hmm. Like you look at HRR, you make a reasonable projection, you use the escrow system in your favor and you agree three, four years in advance, $5 million lifts each year. Like that would be a massive game changer for teams in terms of allowing them to actually, you know, forecast in the medium term with 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 like a high degree of certainty that to me would be a massive game changer for how hockey operations departments do business and would be good for everyone i wonder though does the bally sports thing decrease the appetite for that from teams right yeah where you're you're locking into certain raises three or potentially four years down the road well it might although the fact that teams are still like locked in negotiations suggests to me that we're a ways off from this and, being... And we should say, there are... My understanding, and I think this has been more from the Major League Baseball side, because I think they're maybe the most concerned oh, yeah. about it, they have the most revenue tied up in it, is there are potential strategies to mitigate this, right? Whether it's the teams taking it over, whether it's another company taking it over, but carrying on the rights. It's not... I don't think it's, you know, teams are worried that it's going to go down to zero, necessarily. It's just that you don't know exactly. There's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of uh, potential for it to go poorly. Uh, it's but just, there are there's a lot of different ways it could go. Basically, it's just hard to see like who steps into the breach as a regional sports network yeah. broadcaster because there's a, a lot of like jobs and apparatus around this that's very difficult and costly, frankly, to replace. So, um, you know, there there was even the New York Times or the New York Post when they first reported this um, reported that the NBA, the NHL, and the MLB were even in talks about creating their own mm. creating their own business to to sort of do this so um you know the the implications of this could be extremely far-reaching too early to know which way it goes or exactly what the impact will be but i just wanted to bring it up as one of those things like so far outside the control of emily castonge who runs the canucks yeah. sort of cap right with, with the help from aiden fox and company it's like so far a, a removed from them like Bally Sports isn't a Canucks rights holder, obviously. We are. But the, you know, uh, a butterfly flaps their wings in South Yeah, it doesn't Florida. matter. It's not, the, the and cap it, isn't just going down for teams with Bally. It goes down for everyone. Right. And, right? It, and it impacts the cap projection off of Griffith's way. Like, the, that's the sort of multifaceted factors that teams need to be super disciplined about accounting for and more than anything need to understand and be extremely conservative in how they expect the cap to go up. I do think it's interesting context. It's just a general cap environment, but also specifically the uncertainty. Like, we just touched on it quickly earlier in the show, the Mikey Anderson deal, right? Like, yes, that has the potential to look like a great value 
as the cap goes up. But if the cap is flat all of a sudden, I think you're going to be even happier that you have him locked up 100%. on that term, right? Like, I think that's a really smart way to kind of address that uncertainty is get make those long-term bets where you can right now. People are going to say stuff like he's a top-four defenseman. He's a top-pair defenseman. He's a 24-year-old top-pair defenseman who projects to be in the – like, he, he might be the 80th highest-paid defenseman in year one of that contract – playing top pair minutes for a playoff team and and he's locked up through you know his early 30s that's the sort of deal too you're going to be able to move that efficient great work by the kinks that does it for us today enjoy the game tonight we're back tomorrow here on sportsnet 650